It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Robert Runsey took over as superintendent of America's sixth largest school district in 2011. Florida's Broward County District includes Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, the site of a deadly mass shooting in February. After the attack, the school students protested around the country, calling for gun control. Runsey says he's proud of them. And it should be a wake-up call, an example to all of us as adults in America that if the kids can do this, we need to have enough backbone and courage to do the right thing as well. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion was held in Aspen, Colorado at the Aspen Ideas Festival. When Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School's Emma Gonzalez steps in front of a microphone, it's hard to ignore. She spoke at the March for Our Lives rally in Washington, D.C. in March. Six minutes and about 20 seconds. In a little over six minutes, 17 of our friends were taken from us, 15 were injured, and everyone, absolutely everyone, in the Douglas community was forever altered. Before the shooting, Gonzalez and her classmates practiced debate in school. The debate program, mandatory for middle and high school students in the district, likely helped these kids speak in front of huge crowds. An estimated 800,000 people were at March for Our Lives in the capital. The school's debate program was a radical change Runcie brought to the district. It allows kids to be able to analyze information, take a position, and communicate in a thoughtful way, he says. In this conversation with the Washington Post's Jonathan Capehart, he talks about the power of education, how tragedy shakes a community, and why he's a strong believer in hope. Here's Capehart. You got to the Broward County Schools in 2011? Yes, that's correct. What, what were the schools like when you got there? And you came in from Chicago. Yeah, it was a, it was a pretty challenging time. I came in nine months after uh, a couple board members had actually been arrested. Um, this, the district uh, was out of compliance with um, class size, uh, which are class, classroom size requirements. I think 70% of the out of compliance classrooms in the state of Florida were actually in Broward. Um, we also had um, a number of uh, financial issues going on at the district. Um, we were losing students um, exiting the district. I think prior to that, the, the prior three years, they'd lost about eight um, thousand students exiting to go to um, charters or, or private schools. Um, you know, just uh, there was there were a large number of students that are being suspended and arrested. In fact, the largest number of suspensions and arrests in the state were occurring in Broward County. How many numbers are we talking about in terms of suspensions and arrests? Uh, so suspensions were probably north of 60, 70,000. Um, I don't know exactly what the number of arrests are. Um, they vary because they, the, the way they're tracked, they include not only the district, but also external law enforcement, like our municipalities and, and county um, sheriff's office. Mm -hmm. um, but that was the general backdrop. And I'd also say at that time, a new school board came in, um, a school board that was really um, focused on, on change and remedying these situations and wanted to bring in um, someone from the outside with uh, background, not just in education, but in dealing with large, complex organizations. I mean, Broward is the sixth largest school system in the country. Um, it has about 272,000 students, um, 30,000 employees, half of them teachers, um, and a $4 billion budget. 
Uh, we have the largest transportation system in the county, over a thousand buses on the street every day. Um, we serve over 35 million meals um, to students. So it, it's not only an education institution, it's a large, complex um, logistical operation. So you come in, if you, if you go to the Broward County uh, Schools website, there, there's a, a mission statement. Yes. And it says, to ensure, in part, to, to ensure that we give every single child who shows up an environment where they can achieve their potential. So you come in in 2011, the Broward County Schools District is a mess, and as you just explained, um, one of the things you did in terms of suspensions and arrests of students was to take a look at the zero tolerance policy and the disciplinary policy. What did you do and how did you go about changing what, yeah. what was in place when you got there? Yeah, well, I, you know, first of all, I'll say that, you know, I believe that the role of a, a superintendent um, in a system and situation like this is to have um, sustained, um, disciplined um, uh, commitment uh, and leadership that challenges institutional norms and practices, um, challenges um, institutional assumptions about um, students, um, student achievement gaps, um, student abilities, and, and works to make those changes um, in a very aggressive way. So uh, in the fall of 2011, I came in October, uh, within a couple months after that, we were looking at our data and recognizing this situation that was going on with our, our students with a large number of um, suspensions and arrests, um, which was also disproportionately impacting um, students of poverty, um, uh, of color, in particular black male youth, and our special needs um, students. Um, so um, I actually had an interesting conversation with our local chapter of the NAACP, which was very tuned into this issue and had been challenging the school district for years, but no traction on this issue. Um, so what we ultimately did was recognize that this is not a school system problem. This is a countywide community um, issue. And so we convened a, a working group of all the entities that touch kids in terms of um, juvenile justice, social service, et cetera. So we had local law enforcement entities at the table, such as the Broward Sheriff's Office, the Fort Lauderdale Police Department. We had the public defender. We had the state's attorney. We had the Department of Juvenile Justice. We had social service agencies like our Children's Services Council. We had um, state and local elected officials. Um, so it was a wide range of um, entities. We had um, some judges on it that deal with the juvenile courts. Um, so all of these folks came together for a year, um, studied our data, studied our policies, and ultimately what they decided was that there were 13 um, misdemeanor um, nonviolent offenses which were actually identified in state statute. Um, these are incidents that um, don't create any um, safety or security issues for a school. So it could be vandalism um, under $1,000. Um, petty theft of something that is valued at less than 300, um, trespassing, but these are things that kids were actually being um, uh, arrested or they were actually being expelled from school. So what was happening, um, and I think the Fort Lauderdale Police Department actually um, this described this fairly well, um, you would have students that were being suspended from school, um, so they were like either sitting at home or they were on the street. And they were there, out there for three or five days and then they would come back to school. During those three or five days, they were getting into trouble. Sometimes they were breaking into homes. It was actually creating a problem for the community. So what we developed was a change in our policies to 
identify these nonviolent misdemeanor offenses, and then what was the intervention that we were going to provide. So we created a program called PROMISE, which stood for um, preventing re recidivism through opportunities for mentoring, intervention, um, education, support. Support, yes. Right. So <laughs> all right of these here. things actually uh, were, were put together to uh, provide interventions for kids as an alternative to putting them out on the street they would actually go into a program where they were meeting with counselors, social workers, um, and there was specific interactions with them relative to uh, the behavior issue. The whole point was to get to the root cause of what's causing this child's behavior. And I'll just give you an, the, some of the outcome. You find out that there's a lot of issues going on at home or in the community impacting these kids. I mean, in the last year, I believe, over 400 families were referred to other social service agencies. So, it's, it's really trying to impact the, 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 the student, also providing feedback and information to the school. And based on the data that we have and seen from the program over uh, the past several years, uh, we about somewhere close to 90%, between 80 and 90% of students um, have not had um, repeat offenses. Um, we've seen about a 60% reduction um, in the number of um, uh, uh, referrals that have come up. We've seen significant reductions in um, suspensions uh, in a district as well. So we do see it having an impact. Um, we have uh, seen it directly from dealing with students uh, in our schools. Um, we have seen uh, the district continue to make upward uh, progress. We have our highest graduation rates since they've been tracked uh, by the federal government. Uh, we have um, continued to see our improvement in our schools. Um, just in the past couple of years, we've reduced our number of D and F rated schools from 39 um, to nine today. There's one F and I think there's eight D schools. Um, so we're, we're seeing progress um, in the system. Certainly there are things to be fixed and we can do more. Mm -hmm. And, and we'll, we'll be talking about that in yep. a second. Another thing that you instituted, so aside from the disciplinary um, issues and the zero tolerance uh, issues that you addressed, you also addressed curriculum. And the one curriculum change that you instituted that is getting a lot of attention is the debate requirement, yeah. where every high school, every middle school, and increasingly um, elementary yeah. schools are required to go through this debate class, debate program. Why debate? I will tell you that debate is one of these interdisciplinary um, uh, opportunities that can be transformative for students. So the ability to um, go and look at information, be able to tell real news from fake news, uh, being able to um, then analyze that information, um, being able to take a position on it, uh, communicate that effectively, um, and do that in a very um, respectful um, and thoughtful way um, has just been uh, one of those things that we've seen have a huge impact on students. Um, I, I can tell you, I've, I've, I remember having a conversation with uh, one student I ran into on an airplane. Uh, there were a number of our schools was coming back from a national uh, debate conference. Uh, this was a few years ago. And you know, he told me his story about how he, when he got to high school in ninth grade, he was kind of a disconnected student. He even thought about dropping out. Um, a friend suggested that he go in uh, next year and, and look at the debate program he was in. He got involved with debate. He told me how the skills that he developed 
through the debate program he was able to utilize in all of his other classes. Um, it just really like transformed his life. Fast forward to the end of that year, we have our high school graduations and who's sitting up on the stage? He is, he's a valedictorian of his class. He's got a full scholarship to the University of Chicago. So those are the kind of things that we see happening over and over again with our students. We absolutely uh, believe in uh, the debate program and what it has to offer. Um, and we do it with uh, agenda around equity, right? So we believe that any program that we have in, in Broward County needs to be in every school, not just in one neighborhood or in some schools or for some students. So when we have these programs, and it's the largest debate program in the world, it's not that we're just trying to make it the largest debate program in the world, but we're doing it in a way that's equitable to ensure there's access for all students. Um, we've even gone out of our way to partner with local law firms and businesses, um, and they donate um, suits and business attire for our students. So those that can't afford it, where we're removing the barriers for them to get involved in our debate program. Um, one thing I didn't hear you say, and maybe you said it and I, I missed it, um, citizenship. That does the debate program instill more, a, more of a recognition of their role as a citizen, not just a, not just a student? Uh, absolutely. I, it really gets our student to the point where um, they are um, active. There, it, it makes the education process relevant and engaging. So I'll give you an example. Uh, a couple years ago, we had a, a, a summer uh, that was a very violent summer in America where there was a lot of conflict that was going on in communities, especially between law enforcement and, 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 and um, the black community. We had um, some shootings that had occurred. Um, it was a difficult summer. And we felt that you know we couldn't just go start the school year and pretend nothing had happened. Um, so we launched a social justice initiative that introduced social justice themes into the arts, into debates, into curriculum. Um, so our students were able to have an opportunity to uh, debate things such as uh, immigration, um, gun laws, uh, the criminal justice system, uh, the, 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 the um, relationship between uh, law enforcement uh, and the community. So these are all uh, present day topics and issues uh, that are top of mind, not only for many of us, but obviously for our children and to be, be able to put them in a position where they're able to do their own research and identify solutions, I think is a, is a great way to instill um, citizenship, engagement and relevance of the education experience mm -hmm. to the real world. So I started with promise and took us into the debate program because it leads us right into Parkland and the students of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and November, I'm sorry, February 14th of this year when a student, Nicholas Cruz, went in um, at the time, one of the largest mass shootings in the country's history, 17 uh, people dead. When did you hear the news? That day was um, a day of uh, enormous um, highs and the lowest lows um, I've had. Uh, earlier that day, uh, into the afternoon, um, I was at one of our high schools um, celebrating our teacher of the year. Uh, and we were delivering her a brand new Toyota Camry. So I had the keys to the car. We went to the school. You know, the car had a big bow on it. 
we had news media out there. We had her come out. We had music. The kids were playing um, and performing as well. Um, it, it, was, it was really what we celebrate uh, in Broward County. It was a great opportunity to celebrate one of our um, outstanding teachers. Um, so when we completed um, that event, um, I got into the car. We're driving for about 10 minutes, and I received a text uh, from my chief of staff. Um, said the, it, it appears there's um, some type of incident that's occurred at one of our high school. Um, it, they're saying it may be a shooting. Now, we get things all the time. Uh, we get bomb threats. We get threats of shooting. It, it's, it just happens. They're, you know, things that uh, pop up, they tend not to be real when we go and investigate them. Um, so there wasn't like a huge sense of alarm at the moment because it was a vague uh, message. And he called me on the phone, and I've never heard him um, so um, shaken uh, before. So I immediately uh, went to my office. I spent about five minutes there, grabbed a couple people, uh, and we just started driving out to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School without any real details of what had occurred out there. And then I got on the phone uh, with the um, sheriff and um, started talking to him. Um, and he described uh, what, um, you know, he said is the most horrific scene that he's ever uh, encountered. And you got to the school and you got to see with your own eyes as close as you, as yeah. you could get. Yes, that, uh, later, yeah, at some point uh, that day I was able to go uh, by the, um, uh, the building where the tragedy occurred and... Um, you know, see, see, the, see the, 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 the horror that was there, um, seeing our children and babies, uh, you know, that were shot and still bodies on the floor in the hallway. As the nation was horrified by what happened and still trying to process what happened, another mass shooting in another school, multiple dead, it seemed as if this happened almost immediately, that the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School students mobilized and got out there and um, we got to see their activism and their passion and their poise and their, their persistence. In, in my research, I saw that one of the reasons why they were so prepared was because they had debated gun control, what, three months earlier in November. Yeah, so, so um, some of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas students that you've seen on the national stage, uh, they have benefited from uh, what, you know, we consider a quality public education that we have available to all of our students in Broward County. Uh, so some of them had uh, participated uh, in the debate program. And so, so a few days after the shooting occurred, there was a rally at the government center in downtown Fort Lauderdale. And uh, one of our school board members, uh, Lori Levinson, who's a huge champion of debate, um, all three of her kids went through it. And we worked together uh, very closely as we expand debate opportunities uh, around Broward County. Um, we talked and um, you know, she suggested, hey, why don't we bring some of our students so that they can actually get on the stage. Because we're always hearing from politicians, the community activists. So at this rally, I mean, the stage was packed. I mean, you couldn't all even squeeze um, in there. It was a hot, uh, hot day. 
and um, uh, a lot of people there, and we brought some of the kids. Um, so we had speaker after speaker going up, and then ultimately um, we got like Emma Gonzalez and a couple others, and we pushed them up to the mic and had them speak. And she had an opportunity to speak, and really it kind of took off from there. And um, were you surpri were you surprised by? the reaction, you said it, it took off from there. Were yes. you surprised that it took off from there, that this uh, high, school, high school senior with the buzz cut gets in front of the microphone and just in one mm -hmm. speech and a bunch of speeches that happened after that, changed the debate in the country? You know, I, I wasn't, um, well, yes, I was surprised at how much momentum it had gotten. I wasn't surprised about um, her ability, um, what she was able to, um, say and do. Uh, you know, we are enormously proud of our, our students. Um, but for them to do what they have been doing in the face of the grief um, and in face of the challenges that they've actually had to witness and personal um, attacks each and every day um, is a testament to the courage of our kids and what they're able to do. And it should be a wake-up call, an example to all of us as adults in America that if the kids can do this, we need to have enough backbone and courage to do the right thing as well. And so, um, <clears throat> so I'm glad to see that it's, it's occurred the way it did because I firmly believe if we continued as we've always had to push um, for funds for uh, mental health, school safety, et cetera, um, it, it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, but through them, and actually through um, many of the parents who lost um, a child or a loved one there, we lost uh, three employees as well, um, they were able to get our legislature um, mm -hmm. to change and pass the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School Safety Act, uh, which, yeah, which actually provided um, funds for um, school resource officers and school safety uh, personnel, uh, mental health uh, dollars, and also some dollars for um, school hardening. Um, so the, it's a start. I can tell you those dollars are woefully insufficient for what we need. So for example, $98 million allocated statewide for the entire state for um, school facility hardening. I mean, we could use multiples of that in Broward County alone, but at least uh, it's a start. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival, a 10-day public event held annually in Aspen, Colorado. To learn more about the festival and to discover what else the Aspen Institute does, go to aspeninstitute.org. The Institute's work happens across the globe in lots of disciplines like justice, healthcare, entrepreneurship, and sports. The talks you hear in the podcast give just a snapshot of the Institute's larger mission. Find out more at aspeninstitute.org. Here's the rest of today's conversation. Jonathan Capehart. So as a result of the, of the shooting in Parkland, 
The Promise program has come under intense scrutiny. You were asked if Nicholas Cruz had been a part of it. Initially, you said no. Um, later on, you came back and said, well, maybe there had been a, there had been a referral. referral. People are taking that as a way to discredit and, from their perspective, dismantle the Promise program. Can you clear, clear up what's going on here? Was Nicholas Cruz a part of the Promise program? No, we reviewed everything that we can. Um, we have no evidence that he participated in the Promise program outside. But he was referred? Outside of a, re a, a, a Yeah, outside of a potential referral. Um, at that time that he was referred, or we have the referral statement, um, that was a couple months into the start of the Promise program in 2013. And so our systems, when a student has an infraction, automatically generates several options for um, interventions based on that um, behavior, and Promise was one of them. Um, so it's not clear to us um, how valid that referral is, but nevertheless, that's the only connection that we have, but we don't have any evidence that he participated in the program. But that's besides the issue. This has just been a distraction issue from focusing on the main topics. Um, the Promise program, as I described to you, is an intervention program. It's a positive behavior intervention program. If Nicholas Cruz had actually participated in it, all it would have been would have been a positive for him rather than him not receiving any type of services we've had in the past. Um, so I Promise is a program that we continue to stand behind. It's a program that's benefited kids. It continues to benefit them. Um, yes, there are things that we can always improve in every single program that we have, and we're going to continue doing that. Um, I think we need to continue to um, uh, enhance curriculum there. We need to um, integrate um, and, and, and share data um, more effectively across systems that we have in the district. We have about 17 systems that capture student information, uh, discipline data. But overall, um, it's benefiting kids. We need to continue to move forward with it and, and continue to see where we can improve it. But on the case of Nicholas Cruz, so he was, as you said, potentially referred. Doesn't look like, from what you've seen so far, he participated in the program. There were, um, just from the news reports that I've seen, he was a disciplinary problem. Law enforcement had been called out to the house where he was staying many times. How is it, how is it that someone who was known to be an issue or a problem how was he able to fall through the cracks? Well, let me, let me just say this, and, and, and fall through the cracks. And why, didn't law, and why didn't law enforcement jump in and do something? I'm trying to channel some folks who are saying, here was this problem kid that everybody knew about, yeah. and nothing was done. Well, I, I, would, I would never say that nothing was done, right? So we can always go Monday morning quarterback, create a whole lot of what-if scenarios. Uh, one of the things I did to at least get to the heart of the matter um, and figure out what we could learn from this um, experience and what kind of accountability do we need to put in place in a district. Um, back in March, um, I worked with the school board and asked to engage an independent third-party entity to do a full review of this shooter's history throughout uh, Broward County Schools. So they reviewed 16 years. We also reviewed um, the, our, our data relative to um, student discipline. Um, and that was done in the context of the fact that this student uh, was a special needs student, um, is a, a student that had uh, emotional behavior disorder. Uh, we have completed that work. Um, I had 
committed to finishing that work by June and then releasing it to the community, we finished that work. Uh, we attempted to release that document. Uh, the shooter's attorneys um, in the public defender's office blocked us and would not allow us to release it. So we filed uh, for uh, a declaratory action um, in the courts to get some uh, fairly expedited answers on whether we can go and release the report or not. So we're asking our, our, our courts to give us the opportunity to release the report. I believe the public um, has a right to um, see it, uh, to read it, uh, to make an assessment of what um, occurred. Um, so we're hopeful that sometime within the next couple of weeks we'll be able to get a decision and hopefully be able to release this full report to the public. It, I mean, can you release this report to the public? I thought there were laws in place to keep um, the information about students that, private. Or that, well, that, that's, that's what the attorneys are, are doing. We could, what we've asked for since um, they uh, took that position is to um, get permission to release the report not necessarily all details of his you know, private medical records um, uh, and other information, but the full report itself, uh, we want to be able to release that. And there's another report. I know there are a lot of reports being done as yes. a result of the- A lot uh, of investigations. And um, but there's, a, there's another review that uh, is underway that's looking at the everything that happened on that day. Correct? Yeah, so you know, there's a, yeah, there are a lot. There's a, there's a Marjorie Stoneman Douglas commission that was set up um, to do a full review of this. So it's an independent body set up by the um, state um, through the uh, legislation. The governor has his own review of law enforcement um, uh, actions on that day. So that review is going on. Um, there are a couple others, but internally, uh, we're trying to do some reviews um, and investigations of our own um, to one, uh, really get an understanding of what um, the actions were of the administration, um, school safety staff, and faculty on that day. Um, we need to be able to do that, obviously, so that we can figure out if there's anything in the district that we need to change, that we can improve upon. Um, secondly, we need to hold people accountable um, to ensure whoever um, did something that they, mm -hmm. they or, or didn't carry out actions that they should have on that day that uh, we're pr pretty clear that uh, we're not going to tolerate that and we need to make sure that we uh, take the, the right um, actions on it. So we're, we're doing this um, after action uh, post-incident review in the district as well. In addition to that, we're, you know, reviewing, um, you know, our systems. I've asked our auditors as well as part of our local school audits where we look at schools' financials, inventory, that we also uh, review um, schools' um, discipline records each year to make sure um, that they're actually doing those in compliance with um, school, uh, school board policy mm -hmm. and procedures. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question before we open it up mm -hmm. to Q&A with the audience. So, Robert, good leaders go through what you've been through. You come into uh, a bad situation, as you were talking about the Broward County Schools, when you came in, you institute changes, um, seemingly radical changes, they uh, yield success. You are lauded and praised. In fact, the Promise Program served as a model for, for the Obama administration and their disciplinary um, rules that they did through the Education Department. And then something cataclysmic happens. 
and then your, your leadership and your decisions and everything that people were praising on Monday, they're criticizing on, on Tuesday. You go from praise to pummeled. How have you dealt with this, going from praised to pummeled? You know, I will, um, you know, I would say that's, that's just, you know, part of leadership. I mean, you have, um, you know, there, there are challenges that um, you, you face, um, and all that you can do is to um, stay true to uh, the things that um, you believe in, uh, which is always making decisions that uh, we believe are in the best interest of our kids um, and our community and families, uh, and, and just continue down that path. Uh, we've certainly gone through, uh, ch change isn't easy, I'll, I'll tell you, that's, no, one, no one likes change. So we've always um, dealt with um, challenges, we've dealt with uh, resistance, and we've tried to work um, and stay consistent and, and, and weather um, the storm. I would say I'm more of an idealist and an and, and a optimist. I, I've, I really try to believe um, in the power of hope. So in the midst of seeing the worst of humanity, I'm also seeing the best of humanity from the um, outpouring of support all across our community and this nation um, and the world um, to seeing the activism um, of our, our, our kids um, to seeing uh, lawmakers and others having conversations on topics that they you know, wouldn't have entertained um, a few months ago. Uh, I am hopeful that through our worst and darkest days um, that we will see um, you know, some daylight around the corner and a better future for our kids uh, in this nation. So uh, I'm gonna continue to do this work, uh, continue to push for change, continue to work um, with, with our communities. I understand the um, frustration. I understand um, the anger. I understand the political um, situations that are now um, taking root as part of this um, and how this is uh, being politicized. Uh, but I think we, we need to stay focused uh, and, and try to move beyond that to the extent that we can. And so the people who are calling for your, calling for your resignation, getting, trying to get you to quit before your contract's up in October right, right. 2019? Right. I, I, I don't see any uh, reason to entertain that. I think we need to figure out how we, continue, we can work together um, as a community uh, to develop some real solutions, not point to uh, a single program or single individual. Um, that's the playbook that goes down in this country every time we have one of these shootings and we just see them coming over and over again. You know, to talk about the Promise Program, there's no Promise Program at Sandy Hook. There's no Promise Program at Columbine. There's no uh, Promise Program at Santa Fe, Pulse Nightclub, um, the churches, um, Virginia Tech, all the places around this country. And just a couple days ago, we had a shooting that occurred um, at, a, um, at a newspaper. So this is a, a, a big problem that we've got to get our hands around as a country and start having some real um, honest uh, conversations about it. Thank you for that. And now we're gonna open it up. <laughs> open it up to questions. Um, orange shirt, then the white shirt, then the blue shirt. I have a two part question. Sure. One, you are dealing with a very large institution. 
And the question I have, if you could address this quickly, is whether you believe the governance model is optimal or not. Second, do you feel that the pressures that you are under are going to imbalance the appropriate ratio between preoccupation with the problems, the social problems, versus the normal curriculum, which is going to graduate good students? Great. Thank you for the yeah. question. Yeah. So, so relative to the uh, complexity and size of the system, uh, you know, I don't believe that that's a, an issue um, here or concern. I think that the challenge that we have, um, you know, I would say are lots of restrictions and um, state and federal laws that get put on school districts. So regardless of what your size is, you know, I, I believe if you look at it and step back at a larger level, you got the federal government that comes up with its own set of rules uh, because they don't trust the states and they try to figure out how to control the states. And then the state doesn't trust the local school district, so they come up with a bunch of laws. Every year they launch a whole bunch of bills, unfunded mandates, restrictions on schools without any more funding. Um, then the states pass these rules because they don't trust the local school districts. They put the squeeze on school boards and superintendents, and then it filters down to the actual administration and the teachers are struggling because they're being evaluated based on these accountability systems and test scores. And so they can't even do the kind of teaching that they need to do. And ultimately, you know, we're doing a disservice to our kids. So somewhere we got to go break um, the, the trust cycle. Um, we need to really take a hard look at how we view our teachers as professionals. They absolutely need to be paid more. States need to provide more money for that. You look at all the strikes and everything that are going on around the country as teachers are, are struggling to get by. Um, they put their lives on the line. They make a lot of sacrifices for other kids every day. Um, we really need to honor that as a profession, um, invest in it as we should. The second piece of uh, your, your question um, is around the balance in terms of dealing with the aftermath of the tragedy and continuing um, and having some sense of normalcy. Uh, the reality is we got to be able to do both. Um, so school safety now is at a heightened level across the entire school system, as it is in many school systems in Florida and around the country. Um, so we're working to make sure that we put in significant security measures, right? So we, we've um, uh, completed updating all our surveillance cameras at all of our schools. We are, we've completed that uh, within um, the, last, the last week. Actually, June 30th is, is when we're scheduled to do that. Um, yeah, right, so it should have been completed this week. Um, so we've accelerated that work. Uh, we've accelerated our single point of entry projects where we create fence, a combination of doors and, and fencing uh, to make sure our campuses are secured and funneled into one station. Uh, but one of the biggest things we're doing is we've really impressed upon schools that they have to be diligent and they're gonna be held accountable for ensuring that they are implementing um, to the greatest degree possible, the protocols that are needed. Um, that is making sure all um, classroom doors and exterior doors are locked, um, the gates are locked, um, that they're doing the drills that they should, that every student and individual is wearing the uh, um, IDs and appropriately identified. Um, so just leveraging the assets that we already have um, needs to um, continue. But, so we're doing all those things. And at the same time, we need to continue with all the innovative programs that we have. Yes, giving kids exposure to debate. 
um, creating one of the largest computer science programs that we have in the world, continuing to push graduation rates um, for our kids and making sure they're prepared, um, not only with career skills, but actual life skills, um, integrating social, emotional, and mental health as a more significant part of um, everything that we do um, in the classroom as actually part of curriculum, part of the interventions that we do for kids. We're hiring um, probably this year maybe 100 um, additional uh, counselors um, and social workers. We need more guidance counselors in our schools. We're working to add more of them as well. All this work needs to go on because at the end of the day, we've got to address the social, emotional, and mental health of our students and our community first and foremost before we can actually effectively do the teaching and learning that's necessary. Very briefly, uh, you run an enormous organization at $4 billion that would almost make the Fortune 500, um, which is incredibly impressive. It, um, how do you balance the notion of equity that you mentioned across the different schools with innovation and having some of your different principles testing a program or trying something in a school and then rolling that out across your, your whole organization? Thank you. Uh, so I, the, the equity piece is one where, and I'll just give you um, technology. So uh, about three years ago, our student to computer ratio was um, six to one, generally across the system. And it varied. You know, you had some schools that had resources, so they had a lot more technology, um, and others that did not. Um, so we uh, made a huge investment. We deployed um, somewhere close to 90,000 devices out in our schools. And we did that in a way that it was equitable. So at the end of the day, every school ended up with the same ratio, which today they're at two to one. Um, and we've, you know, we, when we've introduced opportunities like computer science, we've made sure that those opportunities exist in every school. And we do that in a way to so also close achievement gaps. So I'll give you an example. With computer science, um, the district went from about three, four years ago, we only had a few hundred students that were taking computer science. Um, this past year, we had um, thousands taking and sitting um, for the um, AP computer science exam. In fact, in Broward County, we had more um, black students, African-American students, um, sitting and taking the advanced placement computer science exam than the entire rest of the state of Florida combined. So we work to make sure that we do the best that we can to make sure we're treating all schools equitably. And sometimes equitably doesn't mean the same at every school. Blue shirt here. Um, how do you motivate 30,000 teachers to provide pastoral care to these 272,000 children? Like, you know, providing them guidance, mentorship. So uh, again, I, I think that speaks to um, having a shift that we are making now in public education around these life skills that students need, right? Which essentially are these social, emotional um, skills that they need to be able to um, deal with um, challenges that they have, being able to deal with um, disappointments, knowing how to struggle, knowing how to interact and work with other folks. So I, 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 that's the aspect of public education that's getting a lot more attention, and I think it will address that part you're concerned with. Okay, we just have time for two questions. To tangent off of that question, I am more interested in hearing about the care of the activists that had a tragedy at their school and now are getting blasted on the internet. How are they, are, how are they getting the, the care to make sure that they come through that with a healthy mental state. 
great question. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that, that is. So one of the things that we've done from the very beginning, it's not only just those students, it's everyone in particular in the Stoneman Douglas community. We've assigned um, family counselors, social workers to each and every one of the um, families who have um, lost a, a, a precious child or a loved one um, or were actually uh, injured. We've opened resiliency centers uh, that we staff uh, with um, counselors um, and therapists across the district. Um, so, and, and we try to work and connect these families with as many resources um, as possible. So that's an ongoing part of our new uh, normal and will continue. Thank you for telling your story. Um, I was very struck, I think the whole nation was struck hearing uh, Emma Gonzalez's voice persist. Um, it's clear that your students are very prepared for difficult conversations and to project very wise uh, solutions and impassioned voices. So uh, my question is, there's more Emma Gonzalez's in your school system. How are you empowering them to be out there and, and being the change agents of tomorrow? Thank you for that question. Yeah, so so we, we continue to provide um, opportunities and forums for them. Uh, again, debate's one of those uh, great uh, opportunities for them to do that. Uh, we see students in other schools who are uh, getting involved in their communities. They're, they're many of them that you know you may not see always on a stage or somewhere that they're involved in the national movement um, around uh, voter turnout for young people. Um, so the, their voices are getting out there. But the last thing I'll say about that is I, I think one of the proudest things I uh, and, and most important things I see going on with our students is how they're reaching out to other students, not just in Broward County, but across the entire nation and engaging them, especially kids in urban systems who've been dealing with these tragedies for years on end and not receiving the same type of um, attention. So um, it's my hope that uh, we'll have a, a, a closer knit, knit um, nation where folks are coming together um, and the next generation will really forge um, to, to have a nation where uh, there's, a, there's a common voice and agenda around improving these um, situations. So we only have about le less than four minutes left, and I want to end by asking you this question. All around the country today, there are demonstrations uh, in Washington, New York, all over the country, demonstrating everything about the Trump administration, particularly um, what's happening in terms of immigration. You're an immigrant. Yeah. from Jamaica. You came to this country with your parents when you were two or four? Or six. You were six. <laughs> Neither was right. right. But still, over. and, and your, your, your parents' former, formal education only went as far as a third grade. That's right. Does the American dream that your family pursued still exist? I think it does. But and what I'll say is that when I look today um, at how uh, the poor um, and underserved uh, seem to be left behind um, in our cities. Uh, folks in rural America uh, feel uh, forgotten. Uh, the way uh, we treat our, our, our immigrants, uh, the shame of mass incarceration uh, in this country, uh, the achievement gaps and opportunity gaps uh, that exist and, and persist in uh, public education. Um, I believe that um, these things are really call into to question our moral consciousness um, in this nation. 
in, in order to improve things. I think that collectively, uh, they, they, it's, it's a call to action to say, look, as a country, we can and must do better uh, than what we're, we're doing now. Um, I, I believe that all of these protests, all of these conversations that we've had here um, this week at um, the Ideas Festival um, and that continue around the country, I am hopeful um, that we'll, we'll get um, uh, better. I was listening to a piece of James uh, uh, Comey's comments this morning. He's actually reading one of the same books. I'm reading John Meacham's The Soul of mm -hmm. America. And it talks about how we've been through these um, periods and even worse. So when you take a look at history, um, the trajectory is up. The country has continued to move uh, and improve, uh, but we've got to be able to learn uh, from these um, challenges that we have. And I believe it's through um, um, challenges that test us that make us better and stronger. Um, so as we go through a lot of our challenges in, in Broward County, um, as we go through our pain and grief and turmoil, um, I believe that we'll come out at the other end as a stronger community. And I believe um, these things that are testing us nationally will make us a better um, nation as we continue to uh, pursue the American dream. Robert Runcie, superintendent of the Broward County Schools, thank you very much. Before Robert Runcie became superintendent of the Broward County School District, he worked in Chicago. He held leadership positions, including chief information officer with Chicago Public Schools. He's been named superintendent of the year multiple times. Jonathan Capehart is an opinion writer for the Washington Post. He also hosts the Cape Up podcast. Their conversation was held June 30th at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Keeleen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.